Hello, I'm Jason Solomons, and welcome to Sounds Jewish for this election season. In this month's podcast, the threat of the BNP. Are there enough voters like this to make Nick Griffin the BNP's first MP? I'll vote the BNP. Basically, all the other parties and that, they're, they're bringing too many different colours into the country, and uh, I think it'd be better if, if they just kept it how it was, instead of keep ruining it. The Infidel, the comedy of ethnic proportions from David Baddiel, charting the fate of a British Muslim who discovers he is in fact a Jew. In common with many people living in this area at the time, you are by birth Jewish. (laughs) No, No, I can't be. I mean, look at me. I'm so obviously not. We'll hear from Guardian journalist Safraz Manzur, who's taken the film's premise a little literally, decided to live for a month as if he was Safraz Mansurovitz. And who are the runners and riders for the literary prize they call the Jewish Booker? This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. Joining me here in the pod are David Baddiel himself, comedian, novelist and now screenwriter Noch with The Infidel. David, welcome, congratulations. Thank you very much. If you speak that Jewishly, I'm going to start aping it. It's going to get too Jewish in here. I don't think so. This is why we, we have, we have Safraz Manzor here as well with us. Um, you did a little bit of a My Fair Lady kind of thing, like a little Eliza at the races. I'm going to do you today, Safraz. So here... Jewish podcast. I'm going to say to you, uh, hello, Safraz. Can you give me an authentic Jewish greeting, please? Um, I, I, I'm on a fence watch here today, so I'm not, I don't, I'm not going to do that. But maybe if you can teach me during the programme, then I might. Really? I thought by after your little immersion in Golders Green, you, you, you come out. But isn't it more about gestures than it is about the way you speak? Yeah, but this radio, mate. Okay. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah, just say shalom, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> And so the long journey to May the 6th has officially begun with the election campaign fully underway. We've talked before on this podcast show about how British Jews are likely to vote, but there's shared concern across the community about one party on the ballot paper, and that's the BNP. Jewish Tories and Labour supporters alike are looking with alarm at the BNP campaign in East London, focusing on the Essex seat of Barking. The seat is currently held by the Jewish Minister in the Culture Department, Margaret Hodge, but is being contested hotly by the leader of the BNP, Nick Griffin. Sounds Jewish reporter Henrietta Foster took to Barking Street Market on the day the election was called to gauge how people would be voting and what they thought about the BNP. Well, they're too extreme. Um, I sympathise with some of their views, but you can't uh, associate them with the same as the black shirts in the 30s. They're too extreme. What do you feel about Margaret Hodge as your MP? I mean, as a, your Labour MP? Ineffective. That's why I'm worried about the BNP, because she hasn't got a lot of credibility, in my opinion, and the BNP are making much more of a show than she is. Uh, where is she? I haven't seen her recently. Who I'm going to vote, either Conservative or either Labour, um, I'm looking for somebody who can offer the job for British people, not about uh, other countries of Europe to come here and work they never contributed for the tax system. I'm not going to be voting in the next election because they never stick to what they say they're going to do. What do you feel about the BNP being embarking? Because they are all over here. I know they are, and the sooner they go, the better. Why have you noticed them around recently or having any rallies or campaigning? They're always around where I live, always posting things through the door, up and down, up and down. Why do you think Nick Griffin chose Barking, of all places, to... Because it's a big multi-ethnic community, or...? There is, but there's a lot of people moaning about all the Eastern Europeans and that, so there's a lot of them over here, that's probably why. 
Uh, I'll vote the BNP. Basically, all the other parties and that, they're, they're, they're bringing too many different colours into the country. And uh, I think it'd be better if, if they just kept it how it was, instead of keep ruining it. I think it'd make a lot of changes, Randy, and make things a lot better. A lot of people in Barking and Dagenham don't actually talk about what's going on in the area and they don't actually um, vote, which is really bad because we've got so many um, sort of um, Barking and Dagenham BNP councillors and no-one realises um, the impact that it will have on Barking if they, um, if they win the general elections. This country now is too many foreign people in the country for a start. Everywhere you go now is foreign. I mean, take this market... Years ago, it was all white people. Now there's probably six of us left here now that work this market, white people. How do you feel about the idea of Nick Griffin as your MP? <laughs> I wouldn't like it at all. No, I don't like him. It's how he portrays how the British people should think and, uh, and run politics, and that's not the way forward for, for us in this country. The sounds of Barking Street Market there. Among those involved in the campaign to thwart the BNP in the area is Dr Morris Glassman of London Metropolitan University. Morris, uh, we've heard in those clips people in Barking, including some BNP voters and some who are obviously against it. But how serious is the BNP threat? Are we in the media uh, exaggerating it or could they really win a seat? I think it was more possible when there was a genuine possibility that there'd be a Labour collapse of working class about a year ago. I work closely with John Crudus, who's in Dagenham, the seat next door, and the BNP are extremely well organised, really strong local leaders, really strong popular local support because they feel that they've been lied to and their voice hasn't been heard. Uh, when you say they're, they're strongly organised, we heard a, a woman there talking about how they keep dropping things uh, through her letterbox, they're always in the area. Is that the organisation it takes, a, a presence that keeps reminding people of the issues involved? Oh, it's deeper than that. There's BNP pubs, there's BNP clubs, they, they, they meet, they talk. They're, the leaders that they've got have got are genuine leaders of their community. And they can organise against a sort of lying, multicultural, metropolitan elite who don't give a damn about them. Uh, is this why Nick Griffin chose Barking in particular? Yeah, Barking in particular he chose because John Crudus is a stronger campaigning candidate in Dagenham, which is the other place they've got strong... He's the Labour uh, He's the MP Labour in MP in, in Dagenham and because Margaret Hodge is more vulnerable. Uh, where are the BNP getting their, their groundswell of votes from? Are they defected from Labour? They, they, they're kind of disaffected Tories? Oh, overwhelmingly no... Labour voters in, in, in Barking and Dagenham who feel that the Labour Party no, no longer represents them, their values, their community. What is the Labour Party doing about that then? How are they going to try and woo back those voters? Well, that's the dilemma facing Labour. Uh, Labour's got a real problem in engaging with those voters partly because it has lied to them and has ignored them for so long, so there's a, they've got genuine grievances in that way, and, and partly because it's lost its whole organisation among working-class people, become a much more middle-class party representing a much more liberal agenda. We've got an a, a incredibly dramatic kind of head-to-head, almost a heavyweight battle. Uh, I've seen some publicity shots, really. It's Nick Griffin versus Margaret Hodge, the redoubtable uh, Jewish, uh, I suppose she's a refugee's daughter, mm-hmm. uh, against Nick Griffin. Is there something significant? That, who chose who to, who to fight who here? Did, did he say, right, I'm going to go and get hold of no, She was, she she was directly targeted, Margaret Hodge, because she was very tied to the government um, has trouble connecting with working class voters has a has a Jewish background is wealthy 
you couldn't make her up. Yeah, and Nick Griffin is having a a, a great sort of great time chipping away at the uh, at the, uh, the, the the sort of image of Margaret. Hoffman. Well, he just goes around saying, "We're real Labour. We support you. We we represent you." Uh, and yet, um, he does have an anti-Semitic past, and he's been sort of mm-hmm. been lumped in with Holocaust deniers at the time. Is he playing on that? Is he playing that down? Well, this is where it gets I, um, very interesting because he is moving away from the Holocaust denying. Jewish hating bit towards a much more anti-Muslim that the Islam is a dominating religion and can't live with others, is very intolerant, oppresses women. Two of those people in the podcast got it absolutely right. This is the direct lineal successor of the Black Shirts and Mosley. They're basically a fascist organisation, but it's important not to underestimate them. They're really toning down the Jewish international conspiracy side. There was a big split in the BNP last week precisely over that issue and they think there's a lot more mileage in in the anti-Muslim stance. Uh, I'm going to bring in um, our other guests uh, here at the moment, Morris, uh, to, to hear what they say because uh, Safraz Manzor of course has been uh, been engaged uh, on, on politically uh, in this aspect for quite some time. Um, what do you think the fallout would be uh, of a BNP win in, in Barking or anywhere else really? But I mean it does look like it's possible as Morris yeah. says in Barking. What, what would actually be the impact? Well that? I think what's one of those things is with the BNP is so people think they're a wasted vote and then when people feel like they're there isn't a wasted vote because either a council has got elected or an MP gets elected and the idea that they have it increases legitimacy and I think it's a bit like the question time appearance anything which kind of puts them on a platform which makes them seem like just another political party or that there is actually a point to it I think is is interesting the other thing I was just going to say is I'm actually following the campaign in Luton yes at the moment you're for, from Luton yeah and Esther Ranson is running in Luton um, and I'm following it for the whole election campaign for the Observer and there's a BNP candidate running what's interesting is for the last couple of weeks there have been husting events where all the candidates have been invited, but the BNP have pointedly not been invited. And I'm quite interested to know whether that's a good strategy, whether by having everybody and specifically saying you're not invited, is that a good thing? Or does it actually increase the kind of, you know, the paranoid fantasies of the people like we just heard? You know, in a way, when you hear somebody speaking at the market saying, this is what we think, you know, there's too many people coming in, then you have to address, or if they're talking nonsense, you have to argue why they're talking nonsense, but not to just, just to sort of ignore them and just put them aside. I don't know, if, I don't know how useful that is. Morris? I mean, certainly, you know, on the, on the Dagenham side, absolute engagement with them, debate them, debate with them publicly, engage with them. Um, otherwise, they just grow stronger. That's what we learned there, is, is that the exclusion of them lead, leads them to actually genuinely gives, gives legitimacy to their grievance that there's a truth being spoken that the establishment ignore. You said before that they feel lied to. What specifically do you feel they feel lied to about? They, they lied to specifically about immigration and immigration numbers. Right. And so what you see there is a completely transformed area. That woman who was talking about the market, six of us left... Go to the market. Yeah, but I'm sure they right. didn't used to be able to get a sweet potato there about a few years ago, either. Yeah, sure, but but that's just considered. You know, remember that story about Peter Mandelson in wherever he was in Hartlepool, and he, yeah, with the mushy peas and the guacamole, who, who gives a toss, you know. <laughs> but I think the other thing I was going to say is two things. One is I think it's easy if you live in a sort of nicely cosmopolitan life where you kind of dip into the nice bits of ethnic others. Um, to sort of, you know, overlook how it must feel if you've lived historically in somewhere and then lots of different people look unfamiliar. I think that's the first point. I think the second point, and this is kind of relates to the whole, you know, what we'll be talking about later as well, which is this idea of communities not understanding each other or living in bubbles, which is the fact that that guy talking about colours, if that person's best mate 
or somebody who was of a different colour or a different religion, then it humanises the idea of the other, doesn't it? So I think, in a sense, you've got to ask, why has it got to the point where communities can live alongside each other in places like Barking, but still identify themselves by a colour identity rather than the fact that they've all got something in common because their factory's been closed down or, you know, that they've got some shared interests? Yeah, well, this is, this is you know, bang on, as they say. The, the factories have been closed down, but it's really typical of of the new Labour elite to describe multiculturalism in consumer terms. Isn't it great? We've got a diverse society, we get sweet potatoes, we can have a curry, isn't it? Marvellous, all the music and access to different cultures. But, you know, do we send our children to school with immigrants who don't speak English? And overwhelmingly the answer is that we don't. Hmm. We have to beat the BNP because they are, they are a fascist party, they have tremendous hate against all, all people, not just Jews. But equally, it's really important to build up relationships between the different communities so that we can have some kind of common life. Dr. Morris Glassman, thank you very much. Now, there aren't exactly hundreds of British Jewish films, Leon the Pig Farmer, 66, and a whole host of others. The list of British Muslim films is not much larger. East is East, My Son, The Fanatic, and we can stop about there. So the list of British Muslim Jewish films is tiny. In fact, one. And it's the first one. It's The Infidel, a tender comedy with a delicious premise. What if a Muslim Londoner discovered he was adopted and that his birth name was Solly Shimshelovitz? And what if said Muslim, played by Omid Jalili, had to then live his life as a Jew in order to meet his birth family? Say your Shema. I beg your pardon? Your Shema, the Lord's Prayer. Oh, don't tell me he hasn't taught. Uh, well, name the five books of Moses. Yeah, I can do this. <clears throat> uh, Genesis. Uh, in Hebrew. In Hebrew? Genesis. What's Hebrew for Phil Collins? Exodus. OK, I've had No, listen, listen, Rabbi. My friend has drunk my chicken soup. He's danced like a Cossack in my living room. He told a funny story at a bar mitzvah. And by the way, he got a big laugh. I'm a Jew. And my friend here is Jewish enough for me. Come back when you find a better teacher. David Badil, you are the author of this work. Uh, there are two groups here who can get a tiny bit offended. They're quite well known for their, for their kind of sensitivity. What on earth made you want to get right in there and make jokes about both of them? Um, well, because I don't really... I've got a slightly Tourette's problem with with writing, in general, with life, uh, which is that if I have an idea or I have something I want to say, I kind of say it first and then um, realise afterwards that people might not like it or whatever. Um, and uh, that's what I did with this. I just thought it sounded like a good idea for a film. Um, around myself has hung a, a sort of bit of ethnic ambiguity. When I was first on TV, people thought I was a Pakistani. I used to get fan letters from young Pakistani women saying, you're the funniest Pakistani comedian I've ever seen. And I would keep those fan letters because, you know, uh, I didn't, know, a, get, didn't get that many at that time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, well, it was a list of not that many Pakistani comedians on British television in the 1990s either. But um, no, people, lots of people thought I was Indian when I was first on TV. Lots of people on the street thought I was you used to Indian. Do a gag about yeah, you'd only do. been beaten up yes, twice. Yes, I might be doing life. that gag tonight at the premiere for the last time ever. <laughs> I used to say, it wasn't really a gag, it was true. A true story. I used to have been beaten up twice in my life, once for being Jewish, once for being a Pakistani. And I used to wait and I could hear the audience laughing. Oh, yeah, it could be either. Yeah, I could see that. Not at all concerned about it. And did you ever fight back as one or the other? No, I, I remember thinking while I was being beaten up <laughs> by a bloke calling me a Paki, thinking, shall I tell him I'm Jewish? Probably won't help. Um, so, so it has hung around me. And then, I, you know, I saw Omid and, uh, you know, I guess 
Omid, who is a Baha'i, but I thought, well, he's doing all these jokes about religion, but what, what is he? And there's a kind of confusion within the one body Because there. his act for, for, for a few years has been quite controversial on the yeah. religious fact, just because he, it mentions religion, really. Yeah, well, I said this thing about Omid the other day, and I thought you might get cross about it. I said, it's like no one ever told Omid that he's not allowed to make those jokes, he's not allowed to do those voices. And I, he rang me up, I thought he'd be cross. He said, no, you're right, no one did ever tell me. So is there, a, is there an urge in you, here? the classic thing is that as a Jewish comedian yourself, you can do Jewish gags, but no other... Non, non-Jew no, can I do Jewish gags. No, I don't think that. But you think they're allowed to do them? I, I don't think that anymore. I, you know, I've never really thought that. But I no think, one does I think, I think, Well, but I think with jokes, you just you can't say you can't do jokes about another culture and non-Jews can't do jokes about Jews. Of course they can. You just have to look at it sort of joke-by-joke joke basis. And so it's is not... this an exercise in, in proving that, that, that this kind of new kind of, I don't know, ceiling has been broken in comedy? Well, I, yeah, that wasn't the reason I wrote it. I wrote it because I thought it was a good idea for a story. But yes, once I started to write it, and I guess my feeling about it now is there's no reason why you can't do jokes about culture and ethnicity. Is that the word? Ethnicity, I think is the word. You can do jokes about it as long as they're not coming from a racist perspective, which I promise you they're not. It always seemed to me that you'd be writing it, this would be a very Jewish story, but actually yeah. watching it, it's more of a Muslim story. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, well, the arc of the comedy, I guess, is sort of towards Jewishness. And, uh, uh, you know, at root, obviously, I feel comfortable. And I know what I'm doing, do making Jewish jokes. So I had to do quite a lot of research about the Muslim stuff, because I really want to get the Muslim stuff right, because the essential emotional story is about Muslims and about a Muslim man who kind of rediscovers, in a way, who he is through this thing. And to do that, I had to do a lot of reading. I also had to speak to a lot of Muslims. So Shazia Mirza, the Muslim comedian, she, she was a script consultant, and she came up with some jokes. But more importantly, I just sat and talked to her about her life because she's a, quite a good example in that she wears a burqa when she's performing or she wears a headdress when she's performing but she is actually quite secular but totally feels herself to be a Muslim which is sort of how I positioned the family There's a lovely montage I suppose one of the, I must be the key thing as a writer of a film you've got to get a montage in there at some yeah. point and your montage is, is the learning Jew, Judaism yeah. montage yeah. and you've got put Philip the, reading Philip Roth and chicken soup chicken soup and dancing and yeah and saying, learning to say saying, the oi before you can say yeah, the yeah, 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 exactly yeah I mean but the point about that you know, it's basically a chance for Ahmed and Richard Schiff to be really physically funny in that bit. And there is one of the, I think, I might as well, just one of the lines that I do like most in the film, which is he plays him the Hatikva, and then over it he says, doesn't it just make you want to put all your possessions in the wooden cart and pull them sadly and slowly away from your burning village? And that's one of my favourite lines in the film. And then really the point about that is... Richard Schiff, who's Lenny, who is the Jewish, drunk, slightly kind of cynical neighbour, self-hating to some extent character, is presenting him with a very kind of comedy version of Jewishness deliberately because he's sort of playing about with it. Yeah, well, he's, I mean, he's, he has a difficult relationship with Judaism himself. Yes, he does. Like, like most Jews, like I should imagine. Jews, yeah. um, is your, the, the, the point that you were trying to make, was there a message that you were trying to send with this film, other than you started with this very good idea that mm. was ripe with comic mm. possibilities? Did you think, well, I can actually sort of use this for some sort of more political, End. Well, well, I, I, not really. I mean, I think you know, I, I am. I just wrote, uh, and I tried to make it as funny as possible, and I tried to make the story as engaging as possible, and that was my my project. Um, but obviously, after you've written it, you can think, well, there clearly is political messages coming through here, and there seems to me to be. A few. I mean, one of them is, which I guess is probably right to talk about here, is that most British ethnic comedies, sort of, and of both, of all stamps of East is East or Bend It Like Beckham or even sort of Fiddler on the Roof or Susie Gold, in fact, which is one you didn't I mention. Met, I missed off Susie Gold. But Susie Gold, which most people probably haven't seen, but is like all those comedies, they're about a daughter normally marrying out. And the reason they're about that is they're about assimilation. Mm. They're about how does the minority culture situate itself at the table of the big white culture. This film really isn't that. It really is about Muslims and Jews. There's one white Christian character in it, played very well by Miranda Hart. 
car, and then there's some policemen, but even one of them is played by a Jew, Paul Kay. Um, so the point being that I think politically what the film says is it's really British, this multiculturalism, because what comes across in the film is it feels like a very British environment, even though... There's virtually no white Protestants in it. No, absolutely. It was a world I totally understood from both of them. What I, what I did enjoy was, was seeing inside a, a Muslim family uh, the way that's never been depicted in British cinema before, yeah. like a normal British Muslim family. Well, that's the other big political it. thing, which, again, I didn't set out to do, except I have a sort of aesthetic need for it to be as much as I can not to be seen before. I don't want it to feel like, oh, we've seen this, we've seen it in other... Mm. Anything so I thought, well, what hasn't been seen before is a Muslim everyman, especially now, who, like isn't defined by his political and religious convictions and he's just a bit like my dad, right? And he's a nice guy but completely flawed and klutzy and whatever. And also, normally when you've got Muslim women, they either wear a burqa and it's a big statement or they don't and that's a big statement. But in this, one of them wears a burqa but she reads Grazia, another woman just doesn't, it's not a big deal. Then they've got a young girl in it who wears a headdress but it's kind of a funky headdress. And all that stuff came to me from talking to Muslims, mm-hmm. that that's the kind of normality of it. It's actually quite so interesting, you know, you were talking just before about uh, Omid being somebody who isn't, you know, who's quite a normal person. And when I, was, when I was watching the film, I was just thinking that actually it's quite a radical thing to have somebody who's Muslim who isn't radical. Yeah. So in a sense, that becomes, it's very benignness becomes the thing that's actually radical about no, no, it. No, that's, well, you've hit on the nail on the head there. I, uh, I, I mean, there's a bit at the start of the film, am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Um, use a Yiddish okay, version. I, no, I can't use a Yiddish version. Okay, I'll, I'll use the clean version. There's a bit right at the start of the movie. The the guy who does play the kind of comedy fundamentalist radical preacher is preaching. Then you cut to Omid's character, who's looking a bit cross, and you might think, oh, it's a terror cell or whatever. And then he goes f off. Obviously, he doesn't say f off. He uses the actual word and turns over and then watches some 1980s synth pop and starts dancing. And that's, that is deliberate. That is political. That is saying. This, this is what you think this film is about. It's not about that. It's mm. about one of you, and he's a funny guy, and he's a nice guy. Um, and that, that is a very, very important point. And yet, the, one of the key scenes does feature Omid Jalili burning a kippah, burning yes. and stamping on a, kip, uh, yes. on a kippah, yeah, the Jewish but, headgear. Yeah, but for comedy... Yeah, for comedy... Comedy contrivance But, but that's reasons. funny. You have, you have to get to a point in your film where that was actually funny yes. rather than... It's almost exactly. a sort of, sort of Hitchcockian puzzle yeah. to get to that bit. The suspense is, is this going to be funny or is this going to be disastrous? You, you could offend both Jews and Muslims with that one scene. Yes. Did that, when you set out to make this film, did, did that make you extra cautious or did you think, do you know what, I'm just going to put everything down and see what's offensive and take stuff out? Uh, yeah, to some extent. I, know, I mean, yeah, I just wrote it. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it's really interesting that people sort of start from the position of, the film being offensive or controversy, rather than thinking of it as being a film that's warm or charming. Mm. I like the idea that the default idea yeah. has to be... Yeah. It's almost like people are assuming that everybody's on a guard, waiting, yes. itching to be offended. But is that how people true. watch films? For me, the radicalism of the film and the subversion of the film is that it's a mainstream film about these two kind of supposedly fringe, supposedly always radical communities. Now, your, your film could be viewed very quickly or very, very, very it's skirting over it as a sort of handy guide to Judaism, if you want well, to be. I mean, I think you need to do a bit more than just in your film. Yeah. But Safraz, uh, you have actually sort of undertaken uh, this premise and, and just uh, done a, uh, how, long did, how long did you live as a Jew? I sort of, the organising idea was from Purim to Passover. So about a month. Right, that is so, a, yeah. yeah, which month is it, do you know? 
Uh, it was sort of it was, it was sort of the it, end of February to the beginning of April. Yeah, but we, the, the Jews there we always have names for their months. Say, oh, it's that, I'll see you on the fifth of Sivan. I'm feeling like this is like not, this is like a, a low budget version of Celebrity Mastermind. But. <laughs> I don't know the months. They always come up. It's in Kislev, obviously. Um, so you you live from Poland to Passover. You did both of those those. Yeah, um, yeah. Those I mean, the reason for it was ceremonies. partly because of uh, because of David's film, and partly because I think that you know the underlying one of the underlying messages which the film sort of stresses is the idea that there's more in common than we sometimes think. Um, and one of the things that sort of struck me is that there's a, both the communities, Muslim communities and Jewish communities, there's a, li- there's a sort of tendency to live in bubbles, you know, whether it's social bubbles or cultural bubbles or whether it's, you know, the, so what I thought was quite interesting is what happens if one person who's sort of knows and is familiar with one bubble tries to look at the other bubble. And I mean, I was just struck by things which people would say would be identifiably Jewish and them actually having complete parallels. So I was at a JCC event talking about uh, looking at relationships and, you know, they were all going on about um, Jewish speed dating and how, you know, so many people are looking for, you know, people who are Jewish. And I thought the questions of, you know, who do you find to love and whether it's important to be with somebody of the same religion and then also how do you find somebody? I mean, that's so such a strong parallel with other communities. Mm-hmm. But you kind of need to, like, taste you did, a little you bit of the Jewish other world. You speed dating yourself, did you? No, do you know, I, that's, I, that's I, I was going to say this. extreme makeover. I was going mm. to do this, in, but I wrote this in the piece, but it got cut because I was going to say my, my plan hit a bit of a roadblock in the shape of my girlfriend. So she wouldn't, she basically she wouldn't let me. But I, there was a, somebody told me that there was a poster in Golders Green which says something like, mother still nagging you, jdate.com or something. I thought you could just put shardy.com and it's the same, it's the same gag. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. uh, Safras, as part of your, uh, your, your experiment, your dive into kosher culture, uh, did, you made chicken soup, didn't you? You learned how to make it. I did, yeah, because I'd heard a lot about it, and um, and so I got a woman called uh, Denise Phillips, who um, who is she, who basically taught me how to make it. And uh, I have to say, at the end of it, I felt this massive expectation to really love it, because you know I'd heard so much about it. And she said that it was um, the Jewish penicillin, and I say in the piece that it, it was a right. That was right because I could just about take two teaspoons, um, <laughs> but it felt. It, 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 it felt kind of, it just felt a bit too bland for me. And I think my, my I've grown up with spices and stuff. So chicken jalfrezi beats chicken soup for me. But I'm not going to judge the entire culture just on just I can't, on I mean, I, I kind of with you. And I like right. Chinese Chinese chicken soup, I think is, is, is fantastic. But I'm not that we're allowed to say that on this. Well, curry, I mean, I, you know, it seems to me, well, Jews generally like Chinese food. I like Indian food. Mm. So chicken jalfrezi, very, very hot. That's because you're Pakistani. That's because I'm Pakistani. <laughs> Now, all my guests in the studio are published authors. It's that kind of show. So they'll know something of the sweat, the nerves, the anxiety of the writer who hopes desperately for acclaim. They dream, above all, of winning a prize. And for writers of books with Jewish themes, they come no bigger than the Jewish quarterly Wingate Prize, whose shortlist is due to be announced this month. Joining us now is one of the judges, Joseph Finlay, who's also a member of Judas, a kind of alternative voice for the Jewish diaspora, and therefore very welcome here on Sounds Jewish. Thank you for coming, Joseph. Have you you. been uh, knee-deep in books as a judge? Yes, I've got uh, several vast books taking up my living room at the moment. A very pleasurable experience. Do Jews write particularly big books? They do, unfortunately. Yes, we're drowning. We've got a lot of of words to get out. But as a a judge, I mean, you know, the the stuff that there's going to be about Holocaust, there's going to be about Israel, those are sort of givens. Uh, stuff about the UK Jewish experience is that tending to be a bit more interesting as a judge yeah I mean I totally agree with you I mean myself as a judge I try to I'm slightly steering away from the ones about Holocaust in Israel because I'm desperate to find an aspect of Jewish experience that isn't rooted in those things I think that's absolutely what we have to do so how long have you been a judge how long yeah have you done it before no it's the first time everyone does it once 
Right. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. Read? Sorry, David. No, I, about two years ago, this is actually terribly petty and the sort of thing you're never supposed to say. But about two years ago, uh, I, three years ago, I read a book called The Secret Purposes, which is about uh, the internment of Jewish refugees on the Isle of Man. I was interviewed by someone, and he said, well, this will win the Wingate Prize. Didn't even get nominated. And then I, I looked at the people who did get nominated, and they had the most obscure Jewish, sort of Polish, weird names I'd ever seen. And I thought, well, clearly, <laughs> this is a prize that just gets given to you if you have a proper Jewish name. Not like mine, but I could be wrong. But that, you see, I'm sort of, I am still in a petty way that I'm revealing now, slightly furious. Yes, I, I mean, that, that was a shoe in for the Vingate. A shoe in for the Vingate, I was got told. We've a name check software that just checks that. Right. And that's well, how we decide the shortlist. <laughs> uh, what, what's out at the moment? What are, what are, the, what are the, the hot Jewish books, if I may? So um, we looked at the um, very um, controversial book by Shlomo Sand, The Invention of the Jewish People, much loved by um, Guardian liberals and much hated by many Jewish establishment figures, which argues that um, Jews are not a nation or that the idea that Jews are a nation is a modern 19th century invention. It's a fascinating and really exciting book, I think, that reimagines what Jewishness could be. Um, Another fantastic book is um, Adina Hoffman's My Happiness Bears No Relation to Happiness. And this is the first biography of a Palestinian writer in English, no, in any language, by, of, of the Palestinian poet Taha Muhammad Ali. And um, she's Jewish and is Israeli Jew and writes the biography as an Israeli Jew. And I think that really stands out as just a fascinating expression of Jewishness in a really unusual way. Another one that stood out for me um, was Edward Skidelsky's um, Ernst Kasserer, the last philosopher of culture. And this is dealing with the era of German-Jewish philosophy at the turn of the, of, the, uh, of the century and the death of the sort of German-Jewish rationalist philosophy in the face of writers like Heidegger who want something much more exciting. And David, David are, you, are you understanding why your book wasn't nominated? I've started to get a sense of it. <laughs> I've started to get a slight sense of it. Um, I, and I'm slightly worried about the podcast at this point. It's the point where Heidegger's name came in that I thought, I've got a, I feel gags coming to me. I feel puns. <laughs> I feel that comedian thing of thinking I have to now start doing jokes. But, uh, actually, funny enough that David wasn't nominated for the wing game. It was funny. It was weird. I don't know how it's... Never, your, your parents I could get it backdated. Yeah. You could. Yeah, I Submit think, it again. 2005. But... But some of the Wingate winners have not been Jewish themselves. No, and it's a remarkable feature of our, our brief that the writer does not have to be Jewish. It's simply books of Jewish interest that are interesting to a wider audience. Because I, I think, think it's Z- really Zadie good. Smith is a past winner. Yeah. I don't think Zadie Smith or Monica Alley or whatever are seen really as anything but British writers. Mm. They are seen... Black writers and Asian writers in this country are seen as at the forefront of British writers. If you write a Jewish book, you're seen as a Jewish writer because Jew is essentially a niche interest in this country. And that was something I think that should be got away from. But we're not interested in being gatekeepers. We're not interested in creating a separate category of Jewish writing. And indeed, several novels in our list have been shortlisted for the Booker. So there is, they are out there, Simon Mao's The Glassroom, for example. So I think we're, our, our main hope is to promote books that might not otherwise get noticed because of a particular angle. But I was going to say, in a modern, multicultural, multi-diverse society, why should there be special awards for coming from a particular community or books that are of interest to a particular community? Um, I think because of what I just said, I think otherwise they might disappear off the radar, and I think they do a particular thing. And I'm not, I wouldn't argue there should only be ethnic particular prizes. There'd be all sorts of particular prizes of all different genres, but I just think it adds interest. The, uh, the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize shortlist is announced when, Joseph? It's um, in two weeks' time. Two weeks' time, very exciting. Uh, and what will happen after that? Is there a sort of there's a process after that, or we can go out and buy these books and kind of when when's the prize awarded? Is it televised? There'll be a, a formal prize-giving ceremony where the winner will be announced in June. Uh, good luck. Uh, is all your reading done? Have you still got some work um, to go? Still got a little bit to do. 
Mostly there. That's the Jewish experience for you. You're never quite done. Um, But we are, for this month, Sounds Jewish. However, that's a link from heaven. Uh, My thanks to my guests this month, to David Badil. Good luck with the film. Thank you. Uh, May it be a box office success. May it rain long and hard. You should have done it in 3D, then you could knock that James Cameron off. Yes, that's true, but the circumcision seemed to be too painful. (laughs) Oi! And my thanks also to Safraz Amanzor. Salam alaikum. How do I do that? Oh, that's pretty good, so I should say again. shalom. Thank you very much indeed. See, now you're, you're fully Jewed up. What, half an hour in here, look at you. Fantastic, lovely, uh, and, and thank you for, for spending some time with our people. Uh, my thanks to, to Morris Glassman, to Joseph Finlay from the Jewish Quarterly Wingate Prize judging panel, and to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer on Sounds Jewish, Sarah Peters, goodbye. Shalom, shalom.